Hebrews chapter 13. We're looking at verse 20 again. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. I draw your attention to the words through the blood. This is, as you know, our communion Sabbath in the month, and I think the words are suitable as we prepare our hearts to come to the table of the Lord later on today. This is the last occurrence of the word blood in Hebrews. A word that, as you would know, occurs very frequently in the book. This epistle is about the glory of our great high priest and his once for all sacrifice and the intercession that carries on on the grounds of that sacrifice. So we expect that the word blood would occur frequently because blood and the shedding of blood is the heart of sacrifice. There can be no sacrifice for sin without blood shedding. Its last occurrence here in the epistle connects it with something else that is referred to in the epistle and frequently in the scriptures, in fact, which we read about in Genesis chapter 17, what God calls there my everlasting covenant. And this is a blood identified with the eternal covenant. And there's nothing more important to God than his covenant. He is a covenant God, a covenant keeping God. A covenant ratified in the blood of the God-man. So these two vital things are coming together. So it's clear that the blood of sacrifice is something very important. It's central. It's fundamental because the eternal covenant is fundamental in the scripture. And this is the blood of that the blood of the everlasting covenant. So says the Holy Spirit in the text. It is therefore something that is mighty, something that is powerful. And we want to think about through the blood of the everlasting covenant this morning. Now there are four things in our text that I want to draw out in relation to this. The first is that this blood is Christ's blood. In Hebrews 13, we're not told that. It's just said through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Paul doesn't say whose blood it is because he knows we're well informed about that matter. Whose else could it be? It's the blood of Christ. It's clearly a reference to his blood because Nobody else's blood is linked to the everlasting covenant. And Paul has already said that it is not possible that there can be remission of sins 
through the blood of beasts. So this blood is human blood, but not the blood of any mere man. It is the blood of the Son of God made flesh and incarnate among us. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. The epistle begins by telling us about the Son of God, his glory, how he is the one who made the worlds, how he is the eternal God, the eternal Son, who upholds and sustains all things by the word of his power, who is from everlasting to everlasting, and who shall wrap up the old creation, the divine creator, the divine sustainer. But we read concerning this Son of God, the Apostle Paul says, as much as the children, that's God's children who he's going to save and redeem, as much as the children, the covenant children, are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself, this Son of God, he also himself likewise took part of the same, flesh and blood. We are flesh and blood. We are mortals. And in order to save us, the Son of God took the same. The immortal became mortal. He took humanity, he took our nature. In order to save us through death and destroy him who had the power of death over us, that is the devil, it was necessary for him to partake of flesh and blood to partake of the very same. And so he was made man. And flesh and blood means human nature, especially the body side of it, but all of the humanity. It means mortality. It means capable of dying. Man is mortal. That is why he's made a little lower than the angels because the main angels do not have mortality. They do not have flesh and blood. They do not have material substance. They're pure spirit. But we are not. We are capable of dying and indeed have, do die and have died. And Jesus, in order that he might die, that he might go through the sufferings of death, because that's the only way to save us. That's the only way to deal with Satan and overpower him and redeem us. He also has to die and go through the sufferings of death. And so he has to become mortal. And he takes flesh and blood. Angels are not flesh and blood. They cannot die. And that's one of the reasons why angels are not redeemable. Because they are immortal. And because they have no time to repent. Because they don't know anything such a thing as death. But man dies. And before the dissolution of the body. He may repent. He may turn. He is redeemable. Through Christ. If Christ becomes mortal dies. So Christ is able to redeem them by the incarnation, by his own taking flesh and blood, by his own dying for them. And so, as Paul says, flesh and blood 
made partakers of it, that he might taste of death, that he might shed his blood and die. We see Jesus made a little lower than the angels, you see. He was made lower than the angels because he became man, he took a body for the suffering of death, that he might taste death by the grace of God and through the grace of God for every man. So that's why he took body, to actually die and shed his blood and redeem us. So it's his blood, there's no question about it. Through the blood of Christ, we might say this morning, who is true man and also true God, bless his holy name and to him be all glory who has loved us and redeemed us by his life and death. But secondly, not only is it Christ's blood, it is covenantal blood, because it says, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. It's called the blood of the eternal covenant. Now, the covenant referred to is God's covenant. It's not a creature's covenant. There's covenant among men and there's covenants among nations, so on and so forth. None of them are everlasting and they don't go beyond lifetimes usually. They're very temporary and temporal, but not God's. God's is eternal, like himself everlasting. This is a covenant we cannot fathom, we cannot comprehend, because this is a covenant that is timeless. This is a covenant that is outside of time but has come into time. It's a covenant that is eternal, belongs to God. Before all time, he made time, and this covenant was before time. We cannot comprehend eternal. We just think of it in terms of infinite time, either backwards or forwards. That's, that's not the right comprehension of eternal. Eternal is distinct from time, beyond time, outside of time. God habits eternity. God alone. It's that kind of covenant, unworldly, divine, not creaturely at all. And we can't comprehend it, but it's revealed to us in Scripture. We just believe it while we cannot understand it and fathom it. God is first and last, and this covenant is like him. Before all, after all, he who made all, and is higher than and beyond all, the eternal one, before all worlds and before any creatures, he has his everlasting covenant. And this covenant concerns mankind. I make my covenant with you. The rainbow pictured it with you, with mankind. The everlasting covenant. It's always been revealed and further revealed onto us until we get its full clarity in the New Testament. But there's only one everlasting covenant. Only one. And it concerns mankind. Now God has very many creatures, visible and invisible. Uh, we know very little about the invisible world. We know that there are angels in it, the angelic world. For all we know, there may be other worlds beyond us not revealed to us. But as far as mankind is concerned, God has made known to us his eternal covenant 
and it concerns man and redeeming a people from mankind unto himself. And Christ, whose blood ratifies this covenant, Christ is himself as the God-man, the sum and the substance of that covenant. He is its heart. He is one of the parties of the covenant because covenants have to be made between persons and parties. And he is one of the persons in this eternal covenant. And the Father is another person. And the Holy Spirit is another person. This everlasting covenant of God. Before worlds began, and Christ is the sum and substance of it, he is the covenant to the people that the Father has given to us. And it is eternal. Because the Father is eternal. And the Son is eternal. And the Holy Spirit is eternal. This covenant is at heart a promise. A promise of eternal life. A promise of being brought into the life of God and with God for mankind. A wonderful aim, a wonderful plan, a wonderful promise made before the creation of all worlds between the Father and the Son to bring humanity into the life of God. Not all men, as we know, but multitudes innumerable that the Bible calls God's elect. He promised to bring men into eternal life. It's an amazing thing to dwell with men and men to dwell with him in eternity, after time and beyond time, in eternity for men and women redeemed in Jesus Christ to be with God and God to be with them, even in their nature as God-man. It's a marvellous thing. And this eternal covenant is the heart of it, the promise about it all, the revelation concerning it all, to bring the elect into the life of God and with God. And this promise was made before the world. Because you remember Paul said to Titus, in hope of eternal life. And that's what God has. Eternal life. The only being that has eternal life. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie has promised. This is amazing. This eternal life that he has in himself, that he promises to creatures. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised. Listen to it. Before the world began before he even made a world, before he created a first creature, he promised to bring men into the eternal life of God. It's amazing. This is the promise that he had promised us. Eternal life. You cannot comprehend that. That's not just time that doesn't cease. That's eternal life. This is the promise. Covenant promise. Everlasting covenant, the heart of which is promised. This is the promise. I say this throughout the Bible all the time, this promise of eternal life. Before the world began, 
Now, of course, who made this promise? It was God. Who did he make this promise to? Because it's before the world began. Well, who's he promising it to if the world hasn't even commenced? He's promising it to that one who will himself become a creature in time to redeem man. He's promising it to his son. It's in the Godhead. That's why it's eternal, timeless, unchangeable. His son. And this promise can only come to us through Christ because he is the surety of the promise. He is the one who is to accomplish it and fulfill it, to carry it out, to ratify it, to shed the blood that makes it sure and certain. And so he must be made man. That's part of the covenant that in time he will become man and die for sinners. So the death of Christ is an essential part of the covenant. And we cannot participate in the promise of it except the surety of the covenant ratifies it by being made man and, and himself sealing it through his own suffering and death, his blood. And that covenant is powerful. And it's unfailing. And it's glorious. And it achieves all that it has promised and purposed. And it brings in his elect. There's nothing uncertain about it. Nothing changeable about it. It's accomplished by the surety of the covenant. Behold I and the children that you've given me. When were they given to Christ? They were given to Christ in the everlasting covenant before all worlds. How were people promised eternal life before Christ's day? We know that the world has been going on for 6,000 years at the very least and probably well over that. Human history is short but the longer part of it has been before the death of Christ. How were people saved before Christ died and shed his blood? How could they experience the promise of eternal life when Christ had not even yet been incarnate, nor suffered, nor died, nor risen from the dead and ascended. How could they be promised eternal life who been born and died before Christ came? How could they be saved at all? And the answer is through the everlasting covenant. The eternal covenant. The promise which cannot fail. And Christ is surety to fulfill it. And so all of those people are saved before the blood was shed on the basis of the everlasting promise. And Christ, it all hangs in him. Becoming man and dying on the cross, will he accomplish the task? He is surely. And he has accomplished the task. That's what those words mean. It is finished. Those words are like the majestic mountain and the cross where Christ, as he ratifies the covenant with his own blood, in his last breath says, it is done, accomplished. The covenant keeper has kept covenant in mercy. And this is my blood of the everlasting covenant, which we will commune with tonight by faith around this table. 
He has sealed it now and fulfilled it now. And bless his holy name, he has not failed. So it's the blood of the everlasting covenant. That's why he's called in the Bible, the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. As far as God was concerned, my son will die. My son will accomplish it. My son will not fail. And so he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. And everybody who's ever been saved has been saved through the blood of Christ. Though it wasn't actually shed until 2,000 years ago. That's the power of this covenant. It reached Abraham and beyond. And it has come down since. And we are covenant people. We believe in the covenant of God. And we believe in tokens and seals of the covenant which must be continued on in the household of God. And so his death has ratified it. Another name for covenant is that which is in the name of God here, the God of peace. It's the covenant of peace. Bless the Lord. Paul loves that name, the God of peace. And this is a covenant of grace, a covenant of peace. It's a covenant about God making peace with sinners. As Paul says in another place, peace through the blood of his cross. But here he says peace through the everlasting covenant, the blood of the everlasting covenant. So God is the peacemaker through Christ, through his eternal covenant. So great a peace as to bring us sinners into the very family of God. That's how powerful it is. We who were aliens and enemies to God, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, he brings us into the family. The covenant of peace. And not only into the family, he adopts us as children. Gives us an elder brother in Jesus Christ. Makes himself to us his father. I'll be a father to you and you'll be my children. That's the essence of the covenant. A God to you and to your children too. He says. To forgive all your sin. To do all necessary to reconcile you to myself. It's the covenant that does it. Christ that does it. And his death and blood that does it. Through the blood of the everlasting covenant. The third thing about this blood is that it is resurrecting blood. What does the text say? That brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. This is mighty. Because this covenant and this blood, this accomplishes the resurrection of Christ. Let me remind you that Christ's resurrection was not like any other resurrection. Christ's resurrection is not a resuscitation. Not back to the same life of flesh and blood and mortality. It is a resurrection. It's a literal body, a true resurrection. But he's changed. Changed with with a glorious body that is fit for eternity. And so he has a glorious body, a glorious resurrection. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We must be changed in order to eternity. 
And we're not just going to be spirit in eternity. We're going to have spiritual bodies. Nobody really knows what that means. But it's kind of bodies that aren't limited by material and go through walls and things like that. It's just beyond our imagination. But it's glorious. And Christ is already in that body that we are going to have too in eternity. He's already in that now. In the new heavens and the new earth, now. He has the body for that. But he's not going to be alone. He's going to bring his people with him who are going to be resurrected the same as him through the blood of the everlasting covenant. So Christ rose, but he also was changed. The first fruits of all them that sleep. Christ is, is raised, as I said, but he's not raised alone because his people are raised in him in this covenant. It's a sure in the covenant. Though it just hasn't actually taken place and won't do until the end of time. But it's sure and certain. And Christ's resurrection in the Bible is attributed to many things. It's attributed to the Father. The Father's raised him from the dead. It's attributed to himself. Christ raised himself to death. Destroy this body, I raise it up. It's attributed to the Holy Spirit who also raised him from the dead. So God, the triune God, raised Christ from the dead. But also this blood and this covenant in union raised him from the dead as well because God raised him the father raised him and he raised himself and the spirit raised him through the blood of the eternal covenant it's all part of that everlasting covenant part of all those promises contained therein Christ's resurrection is therein contained in the eternal covenant and his blood is shed and therefore by the power that he's raised it's marvellous you see, the resurrection of Christ isn't just about power. It's about promise. It's about eternal promise. It's about covenantal promise. The promise of his resurrection from the dead, and not of him alone, but also of all of those for whom he died, raised with him. And we also are raised through the blood of the everlasting covenant, though Christ the firstfruits some time has to pass before the rest follow, but it's to the same glorious resurrection and on the same grounds and basis, the eternal covenant ratified by the blood of Christ. So you can't rise except you die. He had to die to be raised. And Christ can't rise with multitudes of sinners except he die for them so his death is essential. The blood is essential. His suffering and agony and sacrifice is essential. It's essential that he die in order to raise those up with him that he died for. The blood shed is essential. His death is essential to that end. It lies at the heart. You remember Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground, and die it abideth alone if it doesn't fall into the ground and die it's all by itself but if it fall into the ground and die it brings forth a multitude much fruit and that corn of wheat is Christ 
If he just comes into the world and just lives for himself and just goes to glory, and in the new heavens and the new earth, you know what? He's alone. He's alone. The only man in glory, Jesus Christ, he's alone. Except he die, he's alone. But he doesn't just live and go to glory and enter into the new heavens and the new earth to be alone by himself. No, he becomes man and he dies so that he might be raised with a multitude of fruit. And he's not bless his name. He has his people with him in the new heavens and the new earth. In that eternal life that is with God, he has all these men and women redeemed by his blood, looking like him. I and the children, my father, that you've given to me. He says right all eternity. Through the blood, his death is essential. And it's not possible that he could be held of death because his blood atoned for sin. He answered for sin and he dealt with sin and death just can't hold him. His death satisfies justice. It purchases, it redeems, it atones, it covers sin, it brings in righteousness for sinners and therefore, having dealt with all sin, his very death raises him. His is a conquering death. His is a Satan and sin destroying death. His death is a resurrecting death. So mighty is it through his blood. You see, the life Christ gave is not like the life of other men because he is the eternal life who was with God, who was made flesh and come among men. And so whenever he was sucked into death, the devil didn't know what he swallowed. Like that great fish that swallowed Jonah, it didn't know what it swallowed. And when death swallowed up Jesus Christ, it swallowed up eternal life. And eternal life cannot be held by death, or by Satan, or by sin. And eternal life rises. But it doesn't rise alone. It brings us with him. Christ did all of that. That's, this is to do with the everlasting covenant. The prince of life descended into Hades and death and Satan and sin and hell and Hades could not retain him. So his life conquered all and he burst out of death bringing all the devil's captives with him onto eternal life. As the Bible says, led captivity captive, ascended up and high. All the redeemed into the new heavens and the new earth, the life eternal, which has its final consummation in the last day, as we know. That's how powerful the blood of Christ is. And then lastly, it's sanctifying blood. Because you'll notice that it says here, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect. He's, he's praying for them, that they'll be perfect in every good work, that they'll do God's will, that they'll please the Lord, that they'll bring glory to Christ. And he's given this preface through the blood of the everlasting covenant because what he's saying is it's only the blood of the covenant that makes God's people perfect, that sanctifies them. And so we can read the end of verse 21. Through the blood of the everlasting covenant make you perfect. 
So Paul prays for their sanctification. And in praying for their sanctification, he pleads the blood of the everlasting covenant and the God of the peace who has brought that in and ratified it through Jesus Christ, make you perfect. So you can see he's praying that that blood of Christ and that covenant will sanctify the saints. Lord, make them perfect because, you know, you've made a covenant. You've promised you're the God of peace. This is your will. You will surely do it, Lord. Just as sure and certain as it was that Christ, your son, would rise from the dead, so it's sure and certain that your people will be made perfect. Perfect them. It's the blood that saves us. It's the blood that draws us to Christ. It's the blood that sanctifies us. And it's the blood that glorifies us at the end. It's all through grace and it's all through the blood of Christ. So Christ's blood not only reaches to the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth, not only into eternity, but even now on the earth. Because he's praying for them now on the earth that they'll glorify God, that they'll live lives that please God. And he's praying, Lord, sanctify them through the blood of the everlasting covenant. And so that blood of Christ, we don't have to wait to the last day in eternity for it to reach us. It reaches us now. In this world, it makes you a Christian. It makes you a good Christian too. It makes you perfect. It sanctifies you. It makes you an overcomer. It brings you the grace to resist. Ultimately, it's all about eternity. But before that, God wants you to live here on the earth as a witness. To live a godly and holy life. To bring glory to him. Because there are multitudes of men who aren't going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. And they're only going to know anything about it now in your life and testimony and witness. And so he leaves his people here. That they may bring glory and leave all the sinners inexcusable who reject him and refuse his grace. And while he leaves us here, that blood perfects us and sanctifies us and makes us holy and enables us to overcome. And to leave our fellow men whose salvation we earnestly desire. But if they won't be saved, to leave them inexcusable. The blood of Christ then accomplishes that too. You remember we, we looked at verses 12 and 13. Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered outside the gate. Let us go forth unto him then bearing his reproach. I mean, he, he shed that blood to sanctify us. We go on to him not just to be saved. We go on to him to be sanctified as well. To stay with him and to be made holy. And to battle our sins. And wait the day when at last he'll come in glory and glorify us. And give us that perfect body that knows no sin. So the blood draws us out to him. And the blood keeps us at his side. To drink at that fountain. And that blood and water that comes from his side purifies and sanctifies us. That's the power of the blood. Three things very quickly in closing. First of all, this ought to comfort you who are the people of God. What did Paul say? Who raised again from the dead are our Lord Jesus. Oh, he's our. 
by faith. And we ought to be comforted and to have peace and assurance and to know that we are saved and will be saved and will be brought into the eternal life of God through our union to our great Saviour, our Shepherd, Jesus Christ. So keep on believing in him. Keep on clinging to him. Keep on going out onto him, bearing his reproach. Love him. Hold fast him. And you poor sinner, what will you do without a Saviour? What will you do without Christ? What will you do without blood and without the covenant? And go on in your sin rejecting him. You poor sinner, what will you do, Christless? Come to Christ. Embrace Christ. Receive Christ who stretches his arms out to you to come. Come unto me, he says. And I will give unto you the eternal life of this everlasting covenant. So come to Christ. And make him your Savior and Lord. So let us be comforted and let sinners fly to him whose blood can never fail. And then also let us be holy. If it is the grounds of our salvation, then we ought to be a holy people, to be perfected, to become more mature, to become more like the Lord, at least to desire it, to strive after it, to seek grace for it, for Christ's likeness, to bring glory to him in this short pilgrimage that we have here below. So be holy. But as we come to the table and commune with the body and blood of Christ by faith, let us be grateful. Let us be grateful around the table. Let us give him thanks. Let us appreciate our Lord. Let us appreciate the cost. Let us remember the covenant and appreciate it fully. So let us come. Let us at least come to the table and give the Lord our thanks for his marvellous love for us.